City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City, City Limits. limits. City Limits, it's the second Wednesday of the month, this day we do energy issues, and today because of that we're going to be talking to Ronnie Kareni, a prominent activist for West Papua, I think everyone knows that, but we're going to be talking to him today about the impact of mining on countries like PNG and West Papua. We've seen it, of course, in Brazil and other places, the devastating impact on the environment and on the communities of those countries. So we're going to talk to Ronnie about that and we'll probably have a passing chat, more than a passing maybe chat also about the West Papua Freedom Movement and also talking to Julia Stockart, who's an activist down at uh, Hastings. You might have noticed in recent days the environment effects statement from AGL, which wants to put a floating gas import processing plant at Hastings on Western Port Bay has been publicised and the EES has just started last week. It goes on till August, I think, sometime. So we're going to talk to Julia about why the local community isn't too happy about that proposal. But first, of course, big events over the weekend and um, and public housing lockdown. Meg Kimber's here with me today. I'm Kevin Healy. Karina's pressing the buttons again as usual. Meg, information about those housing estates. Yes. So over the weekend, the Andrews government not only made a lockdown in the suburbs of North Melbourne and Flemington and Kensington, but also gave out a basically what is called a, a detention order based on some of the information that people are sharing online. Um, people have received uh, letters indicating that they're now detained which is different to obviously being in isolation or quarantined or in lockdown because these people living in the estates are not allowed out of the home for any reason, whereas other people in the area or other people under lockdown orders are allowed to go out for those four reasons to get food, to exercise, for care needs. And um, I can't remember the fourth one, but basically, yeah, it's a different... Do you remember, Kevin? Yep. That's right. I mean, it's, it's the total lockdown. Yeah. Well, also, the fact that they were given no warning, so people who didn't have stuff on stock, I mean, also now, even for the government and the authorities, poses a massive a massive program yeah. to just get food to those people. Yeah. And and with so many people involved, people with different diet necessities, people who want to eat different sort of food, mm. uh, how are you going to organise that? I mean, it's a logistical nightmare I would imagine organising the whole thing rather than at least letting people go and and stock up Mm. before you did it. Yes and then the first response and the first thing that happened was 500 police were deployed to um, be within the estates and obviously this is a population that are often targeted and affected by over policing and often probably racial profiling based on evidence from people who are living in those estates. And on top of that also, Meg, many of them have come from places where you just don't trust the authorities and the police because that's what they've fled. Absolutely, yeah. So to have one police officer for every six people living in these uh, housing estates, it looks extremely defensive, really. It looks like they that the government were expecting a riot 
or, you know, people to push back. And I think it's very presumptuous to assume that people living in housing estates um, have a different moral code to the rest of Melbourne. Everyone's making a huge effort to try to contain coronavirus. And from what I've read, the government haven't been supporting people's efforts within housing estates because the resources and infrastructure and even just basic things like appropriate cleaning measures and appropriate kind of maintenance and information in people's languages because there's a lot of people who don't speak English as a first language and haven't received any information in their own languages. So to send police in before translators, before childcare workers, before social workers, before drug and alcohol counsellors and, you know, without appropriate cleaning staff and without appropriate information in people's languages looks extremely punitive. For a bit of comfort in this difficult time, I'm just going to pour a little bit of tea here, but here we go. Uh, That's done. I'm just going to pipe up quickly and just say also that regardless of that, regardless of the timing, I think there's been a compelling argument over the past few years that Victoria Police don't have proper protocol when it comes to people who are suffering mental health issues. Um, There have been countless allegations and complaints about, about racial profiling, particularly on that side of the city by African migrant communities in particular. Mm. And just that coupled with the sheer fact that, well, Andrew's also said PSOs would be there. There have been concerns raised about their level of training. That coupled with the fact that there's no division within IBAC to properly investigate police misconduct And we know this and we know that there's a lack of accountability and it's been raised before to then go and do this, regardless of how much time you give it, is just, it's it's so harmful, it's so counterproductive and it's going to have really lasting effects for everyone, I reckon. Yeah. Yeah, and certainly there's been numerous reports and uh, inquiries initiated by people like the Flemington Kensington Legal Group there, which have exposed that racial profiling over many, many years, but it never seems to get any better, unfortunately. Yeah, and it's a great example of what what the conversation is, especially around, you know, this has been very prominent in America in terms of the Black Lives Matter movement and people talking about defunding the police. And um, a good example of the way that police, as Karina says, are not, trained to deal with the kind of things that they're being sent in to deal with and then you have these outcomes that are extremely detrimental and increase people's trauma and increase incarceration for like vulnerable groups and marginalized groups so just in terms of the current climate a really a really interesting move to make and we have to ask of course if this happened in a say a private department building in Turak would they send the police in and lock people down completely yeah and i suspect the answer to that yeah. without knowing it absolutely would be no they wouldn't no they wouldn't which yeah indicates a real frame of view that's already extremely prejudiced mm. i mean i mean i think clearly the the danger of this the disease of COVID spreading throughout those flats if it gets in there Mm. is a major problem, but I don't think they've dealt with it particularly well in in the way they've gone about it. I think also it's important to remember that while the virus is unprecedented, this isn't an unprecedented dehumanisation of certain people. It almost feels like an extension of Mm. our immigration policy. 
it feels like it's it's not only dehumanizing people in the in wider Australia's eyes, but it also treats yep. people not like humans who have probably had years of it. People who have had to spend time in yes. detention, migrants in particular, and an extension of the pol- and the policies and mindset around public housing. Yeah, definitely. Mm. And of course, the other, in political and economic terms, the other point that's come out of all this is, for years, but when neoliberalism came in, of course, two of the mantras were, one, any government service that made any sort of profit, you had to privatise and hand to the private sector for efficiency, etc. And the other one was, and we mentioned it a couple of weeks ago, about the big four international finance corporations getting getting billions of dollars in government contracts. Uh, for jobs that were done by public servants. And in this case, we've seen the problems of saying that contracting out is the most efficient way of doing public business. Mm. And the contracting out is the cause of this massive new spread of of the disease. Uh, It's proof that that in itself simply doesn't work. That's a good point too. And before, I don't know if we're moving on from this topic, but there are a couple of resources that I just want to put to air if people are being targeted by police and experiencing police or PSO misconduct or harm, there's a website called covidpolicing.org.au where people can, there's a, that group is tracking reports so that there can be some independent bookkeeping basically over these issues since the police are generally just policing themselves. And people who have received COVID fines can contact Fitzroy Legal on 0434136501. That's uh, Monday to Friday, 9 to 5, and Fitzroy Legal are trying to help. Could you repeat that number? Because people might want to run and get a pen or something. Yeah, so if you've received a COVID fine and you'd like to challenge that fine, you can get assistance from Fitzroy Legal and you can call them on 0434136501. And for other concerned um, listeners, people are being encouraged to call or email Daniel Andrews and to call or email the Minister for Housing, Richard Wynne, because obviously they do care about getting re-elected and if they get enough feedback from the community about the direction that they're going in, there is a possibility they can make a difference. Yeah, good. Um, All right, and we've got Ronnie coming on shortly. Mm. But uh, just a couple of other things... um, Interesting enough, in fact, um, Monday's Herald Sun, half the front page was devoted to effectively an ad for Sky News, <laughs> and it says the exclusive home of Alan Jones starts tonight, 8pm. That was Monday, and it goes Monday, Thursday every week. So I, I think we've got to give the Herald Sun some praise this week, because <laughs> at least they've warned people when not to watch Foxtel. <laughs> and in fact, people, Foxtel, of course, is pay TV, so let's hope people, I don't know why anyone bothers to to pay to watch the crap that you can watch free to wear anyway. So they've taken Alan Jones off the radio and put him on TV. Is that what's happened? <laughs> That's right. He's, he's turned, well, I think he's been there for a while anyway, but he, anyway, he's oh. there. But anyway, it's great to warn us. We now know when not, <laughs> even if you had Foxtel, when not to watch the body thing. <laughs> Thank you, Harold Sun. That's right. Yeah. Well, on a similar note, the new fees for tertiary education, including massive leaps, of course, in, um, in humanities, has to get through the Senate to to get through. And so people are fighting to have the Senate knock it back. Yeah, great. But I think there's one person who um, whose position I think is pretty clear because Pauline Hanson said 
she saw little value in arts degrees because graduates get no decent jobs. <laughs> I don't think we need more people doing gender studies, she said. I've done a right in politics without a uni degree. Now, <laughs> that last bit I would have thought was totally unnecessary. And people with degrees in politics don't know what the average person wants, she says. So I think her vote's locked up. But also her bit about attacking gender studies again, she certainly does fight her guts out, doesn't she, to win the Feminist of the Year award every year. But mm, Yeah. I mean, gender studies is always the one that everybody picks on. And I don't know, just uh, change it up at least, you know. <laughs> just like right, yeah. pick something else. <laughs> I mean, the, these hikes are incredibly offensive and the rhetoric around them is incredible. Like, as if the creative industries and arts industries don't employ people and don't contribute to the economy, they do. So that is a fact. People audit this and they know how much and it's over, over $100 billion, I think. Yeah, I think with Pauline obviously on side with the government, and I, I suspect it might end up hinging on Jackie Lambie's vote, which means it's probably even money at this stage. Yeah, it's hard to tell which way that would go, I guess. I haven't heard any comments. Okay, we've got Ronnie Carini on the line, and you're listening to City Limits on 3CR, and we'll be back after this break. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Okay, Ronnie, welcome to the show. Hello, Kevin. Hello, and we've got Meg in the program as well today. Hi, Ronnie. Oh, hello, Meg, and hello, Karina. Good to have you here, Ronnie. Ronnie, you're um, just just to background a bit, because I know a lot of people remember when you worked at 3CR, and we used to talk about West Papua issues on this program quite often in those days. Um, you're up in Canberra these days. What are you up to? Yeah, so in 2016, when I left the community radio station, adventure to Canberra and studying basically um, here at ANU and just completed my degree in diplomacy uh, last year, mid last year. And so since then, Canberra seems to be very appealing basically in terms of the, the town itself uh, for family raising and just the location of it in terms of um, the parliament house and the embassy. So it's pretty much a strategic location. Uh, I've been here since then, yeah. So you're something of a lobbyist these days, I suspect. Ronnie, we got you on to talk about uh, the impact of mining on places like West Papua and PNG. And we've seen it, of course, in in Brazil, where Vale and BHP have destroyed communities. We've even seen it in Australia, of course with indigenous sites being blown up by big mining companies. But the devastation in places like West Papua is pretty dreadful, isn't it? It is indeed very dreadful. And basically, as many indigenous people around the world being impacted by the mining industry, even logging companies and oil and gas, as you named them before. And in West Papua case, and also in PNG, just the island of New Guinea itself, but in West Papua, the Freeport McMoran, or the Grassbeck Mine, sitting in the mid-southwest of West Papua mapping, it's owned by the U.S., basically. 48% of the stake is owned by the U.S., Freeport McMoran, 51% now Indonesian government. And these changes just happened three years ago when Australia's Rio Tinto sold its shares, 41% of its shares back to 
tripled and so Indonesian government from 10% jumps up to buy that 40% shares, makes it a 51. But the impact of um, the mining itself, since it's the agreement was signed in 1967, and to put it in a bit of a context, in that period in 67, West Papua was still under international law, a non-self-governing territory or trusteeship, trustee uh, territory of the Netherlands. So it was regarded as the Dutch New Guinea. And this agreement to give access or permits for the Freeport Sulphur, basically at the time, to explore and, and look at the area where they believe there was a, a geologist went there in 1936 to do a hiking up to the top of the mountain and then can discover these rocks and took some samples and then that's how this all came about. But in 67, the agreement was signed to give permit and in 73, the operation, the mining operation took place. And it wasn't done in a way that the local people were consulted in the process or agreed that such operations would go ahead. It was until a year later that the land agreements were negotiated with the Amungme, which who are the local custodians around the Freeport mining. Further down the track, when the tailings of the dumpings of those um, waste from the mining down the river affected the Camoro indigenous people, and then there was some concerns. So in 97, the Freeport mine signs an agreement again. But by that stage, the impact, especially for the local people who Basically, their everyday survival is based on the natural environment, the river, the waters, for shrimps and fishing and all those gone. Yeah, of course, the subsistence living. I, I saw an example of it. I think I've, we've talked about it before, Ronnie, um, in Bougainville, when I drank out of a crystal clear Java River near its source in, the, you know, in a very humidity heat situation. But within, uh, within months of the mine opening up at Bougainville, that became just a viscous sludge that went right went way out to the sea, so totally destroying people's subsistence living off the off the river and the sea. But in Bougainville, they're still trying to get it cleaned up. It hasn't yet come back to normal all these years later. So the results of these attacks on the environment are so long term. Absolutely, absolutely. And we're seeing this in on PNG, the Octedi mining, which reports around of um, the dumpings of those tailings toxic waste into the river and it has really damaged any living things along that fly river down to Daru, which is the which is coming out through the Torres Straits. And that is one of the examples where this Odeoctedi mining, the impact of the environment and the biodiversity of that um, living creatures that are living around those areas. And yet as we speaking yesterday in, this is in the context of Australia, Indonesia. They've signed the deal for trade bilateral for Australian businesses um, to carry out uh, business and investments in, between the two countries. And what is really uh, the question is like at whose expense? And knowing that the benefits of these businesses are not to empower the local people for entrepreneurship or community development of such. It's more to give more license to multinational companies. And that's in the context of um, Indonesia and Australia signing or sealing the deal. We know that even in PNG, that this is the deal with 
mining companies, which in the, the Pogara mine is one of the other mining operation as well, where the Papua New Guinea Prime Minister, James Marape, have put a stop to the current contract or lease that the PNG government has with some of the foreign investors. And basically, a week ago, the Chinese tycoons, the business people have come in. And so now it has raised some alarm bells around this Pogara mining, the future of this mining into other hands, basically. And so there's a lot of criticism around this uh, mining. Elise, um, now who's signing the deal with the PNG government? Yeah, and of course, in these cases, beside the West Papua one, um, what do the local people get out of it other than pollution? Disease, sickness, illness, not living to a very, the age where, at a young age, and a lot of the benefits are not for the locals. It's more part of these policies, the special autonomy package, where transmigration program to resettle Indonesians from high density islands such as Java to low population areas. So the impacts of that is not positive looking, but it's more the negative aspect of it. And so every day uh, within the mining area and with the impact of COVID-19, the mining area has become the hotspot or cluster area where increasing number of cases and when the outbreak happens, it happens within the mining area and it was immediately shut down to any further investigation. So it focuses around the transmission of that. And even the workers continues to express that they don't want to go to work. They were forced to sign a document whether they will um, go without pay or they will you know, contain their job and continue working. So they were given a, um, no choice, basically. And so we're seeing in terms of what is kind of like the Papuans getting out of it, um, it's not a positive one. It's the social, the cultural, the environmental impacts of it is really um, scary in terms of um, its impact. Ronnie, it sounds like there's not really any way for people to make any complaints either or you know does the legal system allow for protest against these kind of developments sadly not the legal system is racist towards any dissent or political dissent or cultural or social dissent and basically i can bring in a case of west papua uprising in 2019 august of 2019 when racism took place in like basically Papuan students were verbally accused and called monkeys and to be told to go back to West Papua and that sparks an outrage and when anti-racism protests took place a lot of those organizers were charged with treason so in West Papua context anything that Papuans express their displeasure or resentment towards Jakarta it's seen as a threat to the national ideology or national interest. And it's always viewed, a response is to be charged with treason. And even a case of a very staunch spokesperson known as Mama Yosefa Alomang, and she's a, a strong advocate of her community or her a, a clan around Amungme and calling for more recognition of the impact of the Freeport mining and her 
the tailings, the dumpings of toxic waste into the river and her own family, the children washed in the river and um, obtained these diseases where they didn't even know uh, where it came from or how they got this illness. So she advocated a lot of that and basically she went through some horrendous situation where they stripped her of her clothes and placed her in the sewage system for three days and put her in isolation, basically just to speak up about her family and the, the environmental impact and um, for the communities around our movement. So the legal system is not in favor of indigenous Papuans expressing their resentment towards any programs that Jakarta introduced or every, any project. Um, we see the recent in late 2018 with the Trans-Papua Highway. It's the 4,000 kilometer road built and basically Jakarta through Jokowi um, developmental approach into the region and responding to grievances from Papua. The, Jakarta is viewing West Papua as a place that is backward and very low on socioeconomic and so to bring development and infrastructure that will answer any grievances, whether it's human rights, whether it's political, whether it's historical um, grievances, Jakarta view it as it's, it's development that needs to be brought there. But for Papuans, the people have not been calling for development. Uh, it has been calling to recognize the root cause of the problem since Indonesia came to occupy West Papua by which they manipulated the international law in favor of their takeover. And so with this Trans-Papua Highway, there was a, a pushback by the military wing of the movement. And up until now, since 2018 until now, this conflict has not been resolved, but it has left over 45,000 internally displaced persons, basically women and children, and God knows how many number of deaths that many have lost counted, but it's over 200 people that have died in this conflict in Duga area near the mining as well, uh, where the operation, but no one can go in. Um, the military are um, putting very uh, tight restrictions for people to go in, even local authorities, provincial government of Papua province cannot go in to monitor or to just get some um, stories around the real situation on the ground. And when you talk about this new free trade agreement, are you suggesting that Australian companies or the Australian government could well uh, start to play a role with Indonesia in what you're talking about? Because I, while I think there's clearly a growing support for the free West Papua movement, the Australian government doesn't seem to be very much on side, does it? No, no. And Australia's position flipped back in late 50s when Sir Gaffin Bowie took over the role of external ministry or minister. And that is when also it's in line with the geopolitics and strategic interests of the US and pretty much Indonesia through Suharto at the time already knew the two global powers, the USSR and USA in this proxy war. And so was very smart enough to make that move towards USSR came to support him um, while diplomatically trying to pressure John F. Kennedy to transfer these territories, the region. And so that pretty much pushed Australia's position 
fact, prior to, which is the self-determination or decolonization process to support West Papua with the Dutch, it flipped into, with Indonesia to transfer. And we know with the, the situation with the Timor, that invasion Australia basically behind that to let that happen while it can stop the move of Indonesia at the border with Papua New Guinea. And so that in itself, until today, that policy remains from Australia's position is that the special autonomy is the best solution forward. Whereas 20 years now, in November 2021, the current special autonomy package will end and Papuans have deemed it failed since um, the first 10 years. And now they say the people's petition, Papuan people's petition, which just launched two days ago on the weekend, calling to reject the second phase of the special autonomy law, um, which now basically early this year, Jakarta have um, looked into the legal framework and wanting to drop trillions of um, dollars into this package and basically to silence any resentment. But at the same time, it's also through this bilateral agreement through trade that Australia Indonesia has, and even through defense, basically the Lombok Treaty that signed in, in 2006 and ratified in 2007 on defense uh, grounds. But that is one of the clause within that the, the treaty is that Australia should not allow its, or both uh, parties should not allow any separatist movement or support any form of separatism in their territory and to respect each other's territorial sovereignty. Now with this trade, it's also tightened that again. So it's basically Indonesia is tightening Australian uh, mouth not to speak up on anything, on human rights or environmental destruction, but just to remain complicit and remain silent on those issues. Mm. So. Ronnie, is there anyone in Canberra that you, when you're working on these issues, um, who are sympathetic and open-minded about your efforts? There is. There is. Um, the Greens Party basically has a policy, uh, party policy on self-determination and also advocating on human rights. Mm. The Labour Party has not put it within their party policy, but has advocated on human rights, and that's also echoed through the coalition. But on individual, on um, ministers, there was a meeting held late November last year, where it was co-convened between uh, Jed Carney, Richard Di Natale, as well as George Christensen. And there were at least over 10 MPs that came for the Papua briefing, and they were briefed. The Amnesty National, as well as Human Rights Watch, and they're con- uh, more on the lines of human rights. And that brought in cross-party uh, members within the parliament to come, and um, the likes of uh, Barnaby Joyce as well was present in the meeting, and it was great to see a lot of those in, um, ministers expressing their personal position, but also within the party position. And as much as a lot of work needs to be done, we could see that there is concern on human rights grounds where it brings a lot of the members of parliament to come in here and to find ways to advocate that within the party, but also reflecting that through the current policies 
it's not easy. It's a tough one, uh, but we'll we'll continue to keep knocking on the doors and through the corridors up here in the the Capitol Hill here. Yeah, in fact, speaking of human rights, uh, Ronnie, um, the Ronald Wilson Human Rights Award, he's a former High Court judge, uh, last year went to Veronica Carmen, who's an Indonesian, who's a great activist for West Papua. Uh, and interestingly enough, she said that it, when she was at school, she was taught that uh, Indonesia had liberated West Papua and she knew nothing about the reality until she, she, as a lawyer, she worked for a legal firm and her job was to find loopholes in, it, in what environment laws there were to make sure they could go on polluting. And following that, she looked into it far more. And now she's she's actually been banished to Australia because of her activities. She's now regarded as a criminal in, in Indonesia. But these are these are promising signs, aren't they, about where the campaign's going? It is. It is. And Veronica Coleman is a good friend and we continue to um, advocate together. And she was also uh, present at the last year briefing, parliamentary briefing, and she continues to inspire many young Indonesians in Indonesia and mostly students. And with the uh, the Black Lives Matter movement and the death of George Floyd, in Indonesia, many were also expressing their sympathy with what happened in the U.S., but then the conversation also sparks around the same situation is happening in Indonesia with the case of West Papua and there was a student activist that faces the same situation and so the hashtag Papuan Lives Matter emerged and Veronica appeared in a lot of the online discussions and Jakarta was not pleased with that and the university students who organized those webinars were even asked by authorities to explain why they organize webinars and to have Veronica Coman and as well as to have such a discussion on West Papua. And they were all being wanted by the authorities to explain and to sign some documents that they will not do that again or organize any future webinars or anything to do with West Papua. But in, in, in return of that, now it has really sparked more fire amongst students and even progressive minds in Indonesia to really come out and be vocal on the issue of human rights. And so we are seeing there is a shift in Indonesia amongst more younger generations and those who access the, the social media or the netizens. And so there is a big shift in there and, and thanks to the work of Veronica and her inspiration that really uh, has really created these conversations and the shift. It's, it's a small shift, but it's really bring some pressure to the top elites. And um, now the, there's a response from the state and introducing in, laws to really suppress any form of pressure to the government so yeah mm. respect to veronica and her work that's great we're getting to the end of our time with ronnie you're listening to 3cr and this is city limits and we're speaking with ronnie carini about west papua um did you have any final questions kevin uh, only that, following up that last point, that recently, of course, seven uh, West Papuans were charged with treason and facing 17 years in jail because they had managed a protest. But in the, in the end, they virtually got time served and very, they'll be out very shortly. I would have thought the fact that the court didn't give them the severe penalty indicated the power of community action, the building up of people power 
which was uh, very strong in that case in saying, look, this is a totally unjust attack on human rights. It is, yes. Commend the work of all the civil society, the grassroots, and mostly just the Papuan activists were building that network and solidarity with the case of the Bali Papuan 7. And Bali Papuan 7, um, the Papuans, um, seven of them were taken from West Papua to East Kalimantan in Bali Papuan. And because of um, the fear that um, their, their case will create more violence and instability in West Papua after the West Papua uprising. And they were all charged with treason. And one of the ridiculous charges that the prosecutors um, make those demands based with some evidence that came out to be found that nothing to do with the treason charges, which is the article 106 and 110 under the, the treason charges, which anything that is provoked or yeah, threatens the national security or national interest. And the evidence found from the seven, which they were charged for treason, are phone cables, mobile phone, um, some light things like Christmas lights. And this evidence that were, were found to be of threat and for them to be charged with treason. So as ridiculous as it is, uh, we can clearly see as well that the, the Indonesian law is racist towards Papuans. And it is something that the Indonesia needs a very hard look into its prison laws because it was adopted from the Dutch and just used in, within Indonesia's constitution. So it needs a good reform on it. And at the same time, the charge which the prosecutors demanded them to serve 17 years, it dropped down to up to 11 months. And that is, as Kevin, you pointed out, the pressure from the people and the, the movement throughout the region um, in, in West Papua, in Indonesia, and regionally and beyond West Papua. And so we saw that was um, evident in the solidarity. Yeah, Ronnie, um, let's hope we get some Christmas lights at the end of the tunnel now then, maybe. Um, but uh, look, Merdeka, Merdeka is the freedom term, isn't it? Freedom, Merdeka, that's your term? Yes. Papua Merdeka. Papua Merdeka, that's right. And, well, let's hope we get there very shortly, Ronnie. But, um, look, we'll keep in touch on it. But thanks for your time this morning and, and keep up the wonderful work you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Ronnie. Thank you very much. Yes. Ronnie Kareni there. And we're going to take a break. We've got another guest on the line, have we? Not yet. We can have a proper break. We might even take a couple of minutes and see if we can get them on the line. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's voice of dissent. 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au or on 3CR Digital in Melbourne. Well, brothers and sisters, what a show of strength we've got here today. Local issues. So I'm here at the school, kids strike for climate action. Live coverage. Join the, the spirit of this gathering here today at IMARC. Your voices. So give us a bit of a lowdown about what's happening. There's about 200, 250 people here at the moment. Community struggles. We're now in front of the uh, Tundaminuaya Mōbohina Monument. I'd like to thank Community Radio 3CR, who for the last decade has been broadcasting here. Feed Radical Radio, your membership is vital. A few hundred people about to pass us right now. Lots of young people standing up for their future. Subscribe today. 
Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. Okay, back on City Limits, and we've got Julia Stockard um, on the line. She's an activist down at Western Port around the question of the uh, the gas import jetty and pipeline project, as it's called, by AGL. Julia, in the last week or so, there's been ads around the place for the environment effects statement on this, and what's your objection to it? Why do you think it's uh, it shouldn't go ahead? Because, you know, when I look at AGL stuff, it looks pretty promising. Uh, I suppose, you know, if you think that we need to import gas in Australia, you have to ask why. Australia is the biggest gas producer in the world and Australians pay probably the highest price in the world. So it is very strange to think that the biggest gas producer would need to import gas. So it's a very broken energy market. That's the first thing. But um, importing gas and shipping it around the world, freezing it, regasifying it is probably the most environmentally unfriendly way you could use gas and gas we know is not a transition fuel it's no kind of alternative fuel it's as dangerous to burn as coal so the idea that that we need gas at all is sort of that's an important question but AGL have said that well they think we we're running short of gas and uh and we need to import it so that's really pretty strange Apart from that, if there is a gas shortage, which they say, then you would think that uh, that they would want to support their customers to transition away from gas. The demand is dropping for gas every month. We know that. And cities like Canberra, new uh, housing developments won't even be connected to gas. So there's big questions around our energy future, what kind of energy we're going to be using in the future. And building new gas Fossil fuels infrastructure at this stage is probably not a good idea. There are a lot of international companies and insurance concerns and things that will not insure fossil fuels anymore. What exactly are they proposing, Julia? Okay, well, their plan is to bring in shiploads of frozen LNG to Western Port. And Western Port is a internationally listed Ramsar wetland. So it's a it's of uh, international significance to the survival of uh, migratory birds, which are under a lot of pressure from the loss of wetlands around the world. So that Western Port site is absolutely ecologically really significant site. So it's marine ecology and uh, as a home for migratory birds or a place where they, they visit annually is really important. So they... They think this is a good place to build a, a gas factory, and that's essentially what it is, a gas factory. The fact that it's floating is really kind of immaterial. It, it allows them to kind of get around the, the sort of approvals that they would never be able to get to build a gas factory on our beach. But that's essentially what they want to do, is to locate a gas floating regasification storage unit, which is 300 metres in length, which is twice the size of the MCG ground. It's 17 storeys high. It's about the size of the Ruby Princess or one of those big, big cruise ships. So that would, they wanted more of that permanently at our beach for the next 20 years and bring in regular shipments of frozen LNG, regasify them, 
And to do that, they need to thaw the frozen gas. So they need to use 450 million litres. It's half a billion litres of seawater. Every day would get sucked up into this ship. Their reports say that that would entrain uh, marine mammals, small birds, fish, and then it would kill every life form in that water because it needs to be chlorinated so it doesn't biofoul their pipes. So that would be used in a, in a heat exchange to thaw the frozen gas. It would be chlorinated and then dumped back into the bay, chlorinated, dead water, effluent, of seven degrees colder, and that would be operating every time they had a gas shipment, which they said could be as often as 40 to 70 times a year. And it takes a couple of days to regasify shiploads. So the, the idea is pretty horrific, really. And there's no other FSIUs in Australia. They usually, most of the ones around the world are in developing countries that don't have strong environmental um, regulation and certainly none are as close to a residential community, a primary school and a bushfire zone as this one. So the town of Crib Point is just a few hundred metres away and we think it's just crazy to expose the whole town to that kind of risk. There's also a, a Navy base just around the point. So it's a very, very risky proposal and it's almost universally opposed in the community. There's a lot of outrage, a lot of anger at the idea that this would even be considered. And Julia, once the gas is made back into gas, is it then transported off the ship or off this? Yeah, yeah where does it go after that? The idea would be to get it to market, basically, where they can sell it. So they, they're proposing that would go through a onshore facility where it would be odorised and treated with a flammable chemical. And we don't have any idea about that site there because um, although most of the, the infrastructure, proposed infrastructure and in the, in the plans are all subject to this environmental effects statement currently, um, they, they are just starting the work on this onshore gas treatment facility. So none of that will be assessed as part of the environment effects statement and that's very concerning because of shipping storage and handling and transportation and all that of this really flammable really toxic chemical called mercaptan which is a treatment chemical so then it would go through that treatment process and the pipe the project would need a 56 kilometer pipeline to be constructed through wetlands through private properties and through some of melbourne's most productive food growing areas around the north of Western Port Bay and across to Pakenham to bring it to the network. So when it was first announced, the Minister for Environment, Lily D'Ambrosio, said that she welcomed it, that it would bring jobs. And we know that uh, AGL conceded that it would just bring a handful of jobs. Most of them would be um, sourced from LNG workers from other sites. So there's really nothing in that way for the community. But um, Lily D'Ambrosio said that she liked the idea of the project because it made use of existing infrastructure. But I think that AGL has really misled the government in Victoria because they also said it would bring a downward pressure on gas prices and would supply energy shortages. Um, well, we know that there, there have been no gas shortages and energy analysts say that um, it's quite common for 
energy companies to say that there are shortages, imminent shortages, to get approval for unpopular projects. So we suspect that might be the case. And it was only after the project was sort of really up and running in the planning stages that we all, we discovered that AGL ha actually has a, a new gas-fired power station that was announced just weeks before their crib point proposal was launched. So we think that they are saying that, they, that they're bringing gas in for Victorians and bringing prices down, but really it looks like they uh, have they wanted to supply their own gas-fired power station in South Australia. Mm. It's very concerning too because AGL have a long history of environmental mismanagement and convictions for deceptive and misleading conduct and for uh, spilling diesel fuel into Tinker's Creek at Musselbrook near the power station there. One after the other, they've got just really bad record of mismanagement and lack of care. And whether it be, you know, system failure, human error, software failure, we know that if it can go wrong, it will go wrong and it's just not worth the risk when you've got a protected wetland and community, residential community nearby. We have whales and dolphin pods. We have resident dolphin pods in that very beach that live here. That when I was a child growing up here, there were no dolphins and whales. You never saw them because it was an oil industry here. There was a lot of oil tankers and there's usually a, an oil film on the beach quite often. Western Port has regenerated wonderfully since the phase out of the BP facility at Crip Point and, you know, the history of the petrochemical industry in Western Port is really in the rear view mirror and we want to keep it there. We don't want to go back to fossil fuels. So, yeah, the whale sightings year on year, more whale sightings. We've got the biggest fur seal colony in Australia. The fairy penguins at Phillip Island, which is just across the bay. And the thing that is so strange about this is that just on the other side of Western Port Bay, the Minister for, D for Planning in Victoria, Mr Wynne, who will have the ultimate decision uh, about this project, has announced with the Bass Coast Council that there will be a 25-year management plan on the Bass Coast to protect its ecosystems, its, its um, biodiversity, and make sure that the planning is, is really done well over there. So you've got one side of Western Port, which is protected by this wonderful planning regulations for the next 25 years. And then the Western shores of Western Port, you've got AGL proposal. And that's where French Island Marine National Park is, Phillip Island, and incredible um, biodiversity and wonderful marine life. It's, it's such a beautiful area, Julia, and it's a road also to some great surf beaches down there as well. But um, Western Port's long been known, and you made the point earlier, it's a deep water bay, but it's ecologically incredibly fragile, isn't it? So anything like this would just, as you say, with absorbing all that water, etc., um, would just destroy that ecology. Yeah, yeah. There's also a lot of concerns about light pollution. That's a very new field, but the impacts of light on migratory birds is not really well known. They know now that uh, bogong moths... Uh, distracted by the lights of Sydney. They don't get to the snowy mountains, the pygmy possums up there starve. So they're only just discovering the impact of light. So industrial 24-7 lighting down at the beach there, when we know we've got brown bandicoots down there, critically endangered, 
we've got silver-headed flying foxes, a lot of uh, marsupials, nocturnal marsupials that would be deeply impacted. Then you've got the noise of the generator, which would be going all the time because the, the ship would be running all the time, whether it's regasifying or not. And then you've got the incidence, the sh increased shipping in Western Port, which we know causes turbidity of the water. That means that there's a lot of silt in the water column. It stops the light penetrating through in sea, uh, seagrasses, which are the foundation of every marine ecosystem. They're really the sentinel species and they can show a lot about the health of marine ecosystems. They are a photosynthesizing plant. If they don't get light, if the light is blocked by turbidity in the water, they just die off. So there was massive die off of seagrass in Western Port. And that is the um, habitat for fish, for fish nurseries. And the same with mangroves too. Like mangroves, would, they're a tropical species. They're actually a tropical species. It's the furthest south anywhere in the world that mangroves grow because it's, a, it's not actually a deep water port. A lot of people think that Western Port is a deep water port. It's a shallow, sunken tidal river system. So it actually needs dredging for it to be used by the shipping. And it has one shipping channel. But on average, Western Port is about three to four metres deep, which is not very deep. That's interesting because it's always been regarded as a deep water bay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, in the 1960s, Premier Bolte had a, um, a vision where he thought the whole of French Island should be concreted and it should be a nuclear power station and uh, he thought that the whole of Western Port should be an industrial zone and we're still living with the remnants of that. There was a, a, a lot of conflict of interest between the councils and the, and the Premier and the whole thing was very shady. There's some good, there's some good information about that actually but mm. since then uh, the residents of Western Port have fought and won against some really crazy proposals urea plants, bitumen depots, BP super tanker, the nuclear power station that I mentioned, and of course a few years ago the container port, uh, which is now, they realise, can't, can't operate here because, I mean, from a long way away when people look at their map, they think, let's get Western Port industrialised, you know, the developing interests. They want to, they see it as a, a, a big industrial zone, but... When they come down here and look at it and see that it actually has, it's very shallow, it would need constant dredging and it's not the ideal place they think it is. So it's interesting actually in The Age today, there's an article about Viva Energy who are proposing the same sort of FSIU at Geelong in an already industrialised zone and they're saying that the AGL proposal, well, they're saying it would be much more preferable because it would be in a, in a place that is already industrialised, it would not need the construction of a 56-kilometre gas pipeline and it already has the hazard and safety facilities in an emergency because, you know, LNG is incredibly explosive gas and you've got, it's methane, you get, um, you know, fugitive emissions, um, you can get gas leaks, all those things. So to have it so close to a residential community is not really appropriate. Julia, we're um, running low on time, I'm afraid. Um, so we'll have to wrap up in a minute. We do really want to hear about what, as briefly as, as you are able uh, to let us know about what your campaign is and how people might be able to support everything that you're doing there to stop this from going ahead. 
Yes, yeah, so uh, the whole project is subject to an environmental effects statement at the moment. Asia has spent two years preparing a lot of reports that we think are going to try and trivialise and dismiss our concerns. But that is all on public display now. It's 7,000 pages of documents and uh, we have 40 days to comment on them. So if people want to make a submission, anyone can make a submission, just say why you think it should or shouldn't go ahead. You can go to savewesternport.org. You can uh, read uh, AGL's documents there and there's more information about the, about the project and also our campaign to stop it because we'll be participating in the EES hearings later on in the year and, of course, we need to fund that campaign. So if you want to help, you can make a donation there as well. Savewesternport.org. That's the old story, of course. The company has bottomless pockets and the community has to find the money to fight them, um, which is always an ongoing problem in these situations. Mm. It is really inconceivable to think that an you know, under-resourced community group has the responsibility of defending our priceless, mm. priceless environment. Yeah, another yeah. example of that. So we're very passionate. <laughs> it's going to be online, of course, which is makes even more difficult, isn't it? Yeah, so due to COVID, the, the EES process, Environmental Effects Statement, uh, we lobbied really hard for the Planning Minister to um, call that, that 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 would be needed. And when the documents go on display, it's designed to be a period of widespread consultation. And the way that, say, Westernport has always uh, operated is to hold public meetings and meet with the community and talk about these things. But we haven't been able to do that during COVID. So we asked the minister if he would postpone the EES in line with other government um, procedures which have been postponed, but he declined that and uh, he's given us 10 extra days to read the 7,000 pages, but we're going to have to really uh, work hard to get our submissions in before the 26th of August. All right, Julia, look, we're going to have to wind up here, but um, thanks, for, thanks for your time and we'll keep in touch on this one because it's going to be ongoing and during the process we'll, we'll keep getting updates anyway. Yeah, great. Thanks for your interest. Thank you, Julia. Okay, thank you. Bye. Okay, Julia, thanks a lot. And uh, well, that's it for City Limits. Next week, Meg, it's housing, and I think we'll have plenty to talk about in terms of what's happening in the in the estates, of course. We and will. Yeah, things will be changing, I think, pretty rapidly there. So we'll yeah, okay. see what's and happening. Thank Karina thank for doing a great job again. Karina, thank you. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.